the Lockdown Lowdown, a Main FM community update. You want to hear about which markets are on and where? Do you want all the latest news from the Shire? Want to know who's doing takeaway and home delivery food at the moment? Do you need tips for activities to stop the kids from going bananas? Tune in weekdays from 8.45 on 94.9 Main FM for the Lockdown Lowdown. Updated weekly. The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. All aboard. Welcome, listeners, to The Quiet Carriage. I hope you're keeping safe. I hope you're keeping well. It does seem like we're seeing a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Definitely not overseas, but certainly here in Australia. There's no face-to-face book events, as we know, but there are lots of things going on. As we've already mentioned, Sydney Writers Festival have their podcast series. Penguin are offering something similar. Susan Leal, who we had on last week talking about the deceptions, she has a Thursday book club. There was also an announcement from the Castlemaine Library. They're offering a click and collect service and also Stoneman's sponsor of the show and our local bookstore. They are offering free home delivery on all orders. So check out all those websites for more details. And also a reminder for the Main FM Radiothon, which is June 20 to June 26. That's our annual fundraiser here at the station. There'll be lots more announcements about that over the coming weeks. And also, The Quiet Carriage, we're here, we're going strong. Later in the show, we'll have part two of my interview with Denise Jepson from Focal, that's Friends of Castlemaine Library. They'll be telling us more about their Read Long Dads program at the local prison and a few other things that they offer to the community. First up, though, I'm very excited to welcome our first U.S. guest onto the show. That's right, Kavai Strong Washburn is a debut author from Hawaii, and his book, Sharks in the Time of Saviors, is out now via Penguin. And now I'd like to read you a little bit about the novel. Hawaii, 1994. Seven-year-old Nanoa Flores is saved from drowning by a shiver of sharks. For Nanoa and his siblings, Dean and Kaui, this fleeting moment is a catalyst for the desires, heartbreaks, opportunities, and tragedies that follow. In his debut novel, Kavai Strong Washburn flips the American dream to explore what it would mean if this intoxicating but ultimately depressing myth was demolished. Following the Flores family over a 20-year period, Washburn deftly weaves Hawaiian culture, geography, language, and mythology into a riveting drama that explores the tensions of family dynamics and the internality of the human experience. Lyrical and visceral, Sharks in the Time of Saviors is a compelling reflection on place and culture, home and belonging, and on family and expectation as the forces that forge the individual. And here's a bit of a blurb from Marlon James, who wrote the brief history of Seven Killings. He said, Sharks in the Time of Saviors is a novel you never knew you were waiting for. 
Old myths clash with new realities. Love is in a ride or die with grief. Faith rubs hard against magic. And comic flips with tragic so much they meld into something new. All told with daredevil lyricism to burn. A ferocious debut. And here's a little bit about the author. Kavai Strong Washburn was born and raised on the Hamakua coast of the Big Island of Hawaii. His work has appeared in the Best American Non-Required Reading, McSweeney's, and Mid-American Review, among others. He was selected as a 2015 Tin House Summer Scholar and 2015 Breadloaf Work Study Scholar. He lives with his wife and daughters in Minneapolis. This is his first novel. And I'm very happy to replay an interview that I did with Kavai a few weeks ago. Kavai Strong Washburn, thank you so much for joining us all the way from the USA. I believe uh, Minneapolis, is that right? That's correct. Minneapolis, Minnesota. Excellent. Cold, cold north. Yes. <laughs> and a lot different to Hawaii which your uh, book is set, but we'll get onto that in a little bit. A massive congratulations on Sharks in the Time of Saviors, your debut novel. It really is a such a remarkable novel for a debut. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your journey getting this into the reader's hands? I mean, is this something you wrote years ago and it's taken a long time to come out in the shelves? Like, What's the story behind it? Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, obviously, thank you for having me on the show. I, I appreciate it a lot. And thank you for your kind words about the book. I'm glad that as it's as it's getting out in the world to readers, it's finding an audience that has been receptive. That's that's a very nice thing. And it's really unknown until you have a book out in the world, how people yeah. are going to respond to it. It took me about 10 years wow. from, you know, so this year, counting this year. So it started in about 2010. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, I had to write. I've always had another job. I'm a software engineer. I okay. have two children and I'm, I'm married. And so there are just a lot of things that made the writing go slower than it might have gone if I were just by myself writing it mm -hmm. when I was younger or something. So it took about 10 years. You know, it was there's a mix of some some time doing research. I, I was I, I don't have a background in writing. Like I didn't study mm -hmm. writing at a university or go into any of the more formal programs that are available here in the States. So I didn't have a bunch of friends that were writers or anything like that. So I had to write completely on my own and mm -hmm. just sort of find my way through the craft and things like that. So it took 10 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so has that always been like a, a sort of secret passion of yours, writing? Because it seems to be a lot different from being a software engineer. How, how does that come about? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a secret passion. It's just the thing that I do artistically, you know, one of my, my primary artistic outlets mm -hmm. that, uh, you just never know if it's going to be something that's going to make you any money. And so, yeah. you know, most writers I know, unless they're lucky enough to, to have had some level of success, they have other jobs. Yeah. Right. And so I just had another job and, and made my art when I could. And I made time for my art, but it was, always a sort of thing where there's a question mark about whether you're going to get any money for it, right? Or any yes. money, certainly any money that's going to do anything more than just make you be able to buy like a nice new shirt or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. So. I'd say for 99% of writers, it's a struggle. I think that's a definite, a, a better way to do it, to have that guaranteed paycheck, to have that other job. 
Yeah, it takes longer when you don't That's true. have as much time to write. You know, certainly, I, you know, I would like to be, I've been researching and, and working at a, at a very kind of early stage on my next novel mm-hmm. and it just, it goes slow. It goes slower than yeah. I would like. There are days where I know that I could write more if I had more time. Like I can sit down and write for an hour and be like, no, you know what? I could write for two or three more hours right now, but I can't because yeah. my kids are awake. We have to start our day, you know, so it yeah. goes slower, but it's certainly nice not being, there's no fear or anxiety about mm-hmm. paycheck you know yes. and that's uh, that's an important thing especially when you've got a family there's no you know there's much less of that to worry about so. yes yeah i've got two kids as well and it's a struggle trying to find those couple of hours in a day to write to to do your own yeah. thing it's, it's tough doing that juggle yeah the, the the novel it's told from the viewpoint of three siblings um and you give them such distinctive voices uh, I was thinking this morning about Dean. He's the eldest sibling. Mm-hmm. And just yeah. I, I picked out a bit of language just to give our, our readers a sort of flavor of it. I think this is on page two, 250. He says, up there, get plenty different ways for make money, right? It's almost like pigeon yeah. English. Um, and that's such a contrast to the way his other siblings talk. Was that, was that hard to do for you? Was it time consuming to give them such distinctive voices? Yes, is incredibly time consuming. Yeah, it the probably the whole first year of of the writing was really taking each character at a time and really figuring out what their voice was going to sound like and what their inner you know the inner world of their their mind was and having a different you know putting them in a situation and then saying like how would Cowie respond to this? How would Dean respond to this? How would Nainoa respond to this? And really, there were even just fictional events that I made up or things that that didn't end up in the final version of the novel that I used as a way to help me just figure out their voices and figure Mm -hmm. out their internal mechanisms. And it it just took a long time. Yeah, yeah. And for the first, you know, for I think probably the first half of the first draft that I wrote, I just wrote that character's, I wrote each character's sections independent of the other characters so I could kind of stay in that voice and really develop some level of consistency. And and after that felt like it was well established, then I went back and could start weaving things together and and making things fit more fluidly between the the different chapters. But it was, a, it was a lot of work. I think it's worth it. It works really well. I mean, it's so refreshing because, you know, someone like Cowie, I would miss her after three or four chapters and then I would see that the next chapter is Cowie and I'm like, oh, great. You know, I'm back in, was it San Diego? You know, so I think it really, that movement, yeah. moving around, I, I think I find it really refreshing and, and, and quite different, to be honest. Yeah, thank you. That's certainly that, you know, some of the novels I've read that I've enjoyed the most have a rotating first person perspective like that. And it's also nice when it's a, a rotating perspective that brings you back to the same characters. It is sometimes disappointing if you have a novel that has almost like an ensemble cast and you hear yes. from each character once and then you never hear from them again. That's, that always disappoints me a little bit if I like yeah. the characters. So having a rotating first person that comes back to the to the same cast of characters over and over is is a form that i certainly enjoy so that was one of the reasons i wrote it this way just because that's the kind of those are the sorts of books that i like to read so. yeah yeah it's a, it's a lot of work for you but the but the payoff is big <laughs> <laughs> um i don't I, it's set in uh, predominantly in hawaii 
and that's where it starts off and that's where we go back to and I, I don't really want to give anywhere, any of the book away but there's a real sort of yeah. um, esoteric element to it uh, in particular I think it's the Night Marchers who we meet at the start and I didn't really understand that part of the story completely I don't think but it reminded me a little of Australian indigenous people and their dreamtime stories I don't know how much you know about that in America but basically it tells their history and how the world came to be and yeah um, yeah I was wondering is that the same with the story you're telling here with the night marches I mean can you can you elaborate on that a little bit yeah so there are several different elements of native Hawaiian mythology that are present in the book. Mm -hmm. There are several gods that people that are from the islands will be familiar with. So for instance, there are a few times where I allude to Pele, who's the goddess of fire and volcanoes Mm -hmm. in the islands. The the characters interact with her at some level a few times. Similarly for Kamapua'a, who is a god of a variety of things, but he can often appear in the form of a pig or a boar. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's another legend, and, and that shows up in the book as well. Mm-hmm. And then there are the night marchers, which you can. It's it, that is a it is a legend that has a little bit of fluidity to it in terms of the exact what they are exactly. You know, some things that some references I've seen talk about them being uh, the long dead warriors of of different tribes in the islands and some places I've heard them speak a little bit more directly to them being the long dead chiefs of the islands and things like that or or different chiefs that were part of tribes that that occupied parts of the island at different times and so that's that's a legend that I could use like I could it could be part of the story but it was also something I could kind of explore and take in my own direction so I took it a little bit beyond it's a little bit more it's, it's used in a more specific way in my novel than it might be in a lot of legends or, or myths. But right. it comes, you know, from the, from the ancient Hawaiian uh, stories. And it has a lot to do with the people from the past, particularly people that were part of tribes and, and, and chiefdoms that, that were slain in battle. I think it always refers to them as being the ghosts of, of warriors that were slain in battle. Right, right. And is this still part of mainstream belief in Hawaii today? Yeah, you know, I think it's going to vary depending on the region and the part of right. the, the islands you're in. Certainly when I was growing up, my friends and I would tell each other ghost stories in which the night marchers or right. other spirits played a, a an active role. And people will still talk in very serious terms about the gods of the islands and how to how to take care of the islands and the lands in a way that aligns you with the favor of the gods and that there's potential for things in your life to go wrong or for you to have bad luck or things to happen to you as a result of, you know, displeasing the gods. And people will speak about those things in in relatively real terms. And so there's kind of a mix of, of sort of the modern day contemporary parts of the United States or just the world in general that are very much the way people live in the islands, but there's this great blend of the, the ancient as well. And that was one of the things I wanted to, to have readers experience in the yeah. novel. So. Yeah, I love, I love how you wove that in. Some 
That was Whitney there with their track, No Woman. And now we'll return to my interview with the author, Kavai Strong Washburn. In Australia, we don't get, we don't hear that much about Hawaii, to be honest. I mean, my sort of thoughts of Hawaii, you know, Hawaii Five O Magnum, um, forgetting yeah. Sarah Marshall, you know. And it right. was great to see that sort of um, realistic portrayal of Hawaiian life in your book. Um, how 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 far removed from Hawaii? Oh, sorry, is Hawaii from the USA? How different is it? Yeah, it's very interesting. In some ways, it feels, or at least to me, and you know, it's always hard to speak about the the islands and generalizations the same way it is difficult to speak in generalizations about any place. Yeah. But for me, you know, my experience growing up there, and I grew up in a relatively rural part of the state, so right. Honoka'a, where the, the story is set in the early chapters and where it's set in some of the later chapters as well, yes. that's a relatively rural part of the islands. It used to be a sugarcane agricultural town, and, you know, it, it still remains largely unchanged from how it was when I was just the, you know, when I was in elementary school. Okay. And so there, you know, in some ways the islands can feel very, very different than the, the continental United States, almost like you're in another country. Right. A lot of that can have to do with all the different ethnic groups that live there in, a, in what I would consider a more or less very fluid sort of 
there's, there's, there's a lot of cultural exchange that happens and a blending of the cultures so that I knew things about Filipino culture and Japanese culture and Chinese culture and all of those things existed in the same space at the same time in a way that none of them felt, you know, quote unquote foreign. Mm-hmm. And so elements of those different cultures were all part of my upbringing and part of the way I experienced the world when I was young. And so you take those things and you combine them with the, the sort of elements of native Hawaiian culture. And then you also have things like the Paniolo who are, that's, those are the ranchers and cowboys that right. came to the islands a little bit later. So you've got all of those, those like very specific, interesting elements. And then you also have things that are very much just part of the United States, like movies, you know, like mm-hmm. all of the movies that everybody in the United States is watching. You can see all the television shows and the music and all those sorts of things exist in, at the same time as these other elements. So in some ways it feels very different and in other ways it feels like you're still part of the United States. So it's an interesting combination and I've, I haven't experienced a part of the United States that feels anything like Hawaii as a result. You know, it's just a very different place, and yet it is still part of the United States in many ways yeah, yeah. that, that it, you just can't extract one from the other. So yeah, it's yeah. interesting. When, uh, when did you leave Hawaii? So I left when I was 18. Mm-hmm. I left to go to the university and at the University of Portland in Portland, Oregon. And I have not lived there since, you know, I still have family there. So I visit and I visit less frequently now than I would like because, you know, we have two children and we live farther away and our Mm -hmm. children are young enough that it's a, it's a tricky flight to make and it's expensive. And you you need a lot of time if you're going to go there now. The farther you live, the harder it is to be like, oh, let's just pop over there for four (laughs) or five days. You know, you Mm -hmm. just can't do that if you don't live on the West Coast, like California or Oregon or Washington. If you don't live in one of those states, then all of a sudden it becomes a lot trickier to get back to the islands. So Mm -hmm. all of those things combined make it hard for me to to get back as often as I would like. So it's been, in terms of living there as a full-time resident, it's been you know, 20, over 20 years since yeah, I was right. a full-time resident of the islands, but uh, yeah. I'm still attached, you know, I have family there, so. Yeah, you, you obviously think about it a lot because you, you know, you've wrote a novel based around it. Do, do you miss it? Yeah. Miss being there? I do. Yeah. I do, and the longer I'm away and the more that I start to learn about myself and, and the United States and sort of my relationship with the United States, the more I miss uh, the islands because I start to realize as I get older, parts of my upbringing that were that that were so you know parts of me that were that I am who I am because of having lived in the islands having mm. been born and raised there and I feel so far from some of those things now and now that I have children that are growing up there are all these experiences I had as a child that they're not having and mm. I miss those and I miss those more now because I'm like well I have these things inside me that my children aren't going to experience or they're not experiencing right now. And I want those to be a part of their life as well. Mm. And so some of those things make me long for, for the islands even more Mm. than I might have previously. Yeah. I guess I I have a similar thing. I was born in Scotland and came to Australia when I was 10 and it, it just, even though I was young, it it still never leaves you. I still think about a lot. I'm not saying I'd want to live there particularly, but um, right. Yeah. you, you, You don't lose that lose that yeah it's still a part of you affection you have for it yeah do do you think you would ever move back to hawaii you know my wife and i have talked about it the thing that's that's a challenge is that first of all and the book speaks to this it really is a challenging place to make ends meet economically Mm. 
there are certain jobs you can have there that will that will make it livable. You know, mm-hmm. if you can get a kind of the the standard professional class jobs that exist in a lot of places, whether that means like being an attorney or working for a a bank or something like that, or if you work for the government, the state or the federal government, then you know there are some jobs you can have that will make mm-hmm. it very livable. But outside of that, you know, for a lot of people, it's a challenge, and it's yeah. a challenge to do when you have a family to raise, and so that makes it uh, difficult for us to do. But you know, I think we would probably try it anyway, except that Christina, right. my wife, her family, they're all here in Minnesota, right. and you know, some of her family members are certainly older in age, and it would be very difficult for them to see us if mm-hmm. we were in the islands. And so, if we decided to move all the way to Hawaii, it would basically mean we were deciding to not see half of our family in any significant way, you know, for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. And my family is kind of spread all over the West Coast in California and Oregon okay. and Texas. And so if we did move to Hawaii, we would still be missing half of my family and then all of Christina's family, yeah. you know? <laughs> so it's really, it's really a family decision in terms of what keeps us away from the islands the the economics of it would be very challenging but i think my wife and i would probably try it if the family connection were not so tenuous if we were to move out there yeah it's tough isn't it yeah i do sympathize yeah it is um (laughs) yeah so do you think you'll write more stories about hawaii or is this something that you you will yep yeah, no, this is not a one-off uh, novel. And I think that for a long time, when I first started writing, the first set of short stories that I got published in literary magazines and the, the first novel I wrote, which is not a good novel that I threw away after I wrote it, uh, none of those were set in the islands. They had mm-hmm. very little to do with Hawaii or things like that. And this novel, over the course of writing it, it was sort of a also a journey of self-discovery. And I realized all these things about myself and my life that were sort of unearthed while I was writing it. And re- mm-hmm. it really helped me understand more of who I am as a person. And, and a lot of that is tied to the islands. And so it was right. a very powerful and exciting experience to write about the islands and, and feel them come alive inside me in a way that they had been sort of dormant for years. Yeah. And I, I like that feeling. And there's there's lots to there are lots of stories that can be told about the islands, and and it's it's a place that feels very exciting and full mm. of full of energy and potential for me as far as a, a place to to write stories. So the novel I'm working on right now is also set in the islands, and it's still early days. So maybe yeah. the whole thing's going to fall apart, and then I'll say I don't want to write about the islands anymore. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> but right now, it certainly feels like I could write more about Hawaii. So. Yeah, yeah, great. You're not part of any of the like New York or Californian like bigger literary scenes. How hard has it been for you to to get noticed, to get published? So I think that it was, you know, I just, I, I just sort of kept at it the way that you would have anywhere you're living in the United States in terms of. So I didn't have any inside mm-hmm. connections, and so at the start. Yeah. You know, there was no one I could send my work to except just to send it out cold, you know, in envelopes at the time. I was still doing some submissions by by postal mail. And then there were other submissions I was doing electronically mm-hmm. to just literary magazines. Right. And and so I did that for a while and, and kept working on getting becoming a better writer. And eventually I I was able to go to some sort of writing conferences right. and that I started to meet people at writing conferences and 
And I just sort of slowly started to get better at writing and started to meet a few people that that helped me a little bit. And, and then I started to get a better sense for where I could send my work. And so just that was all about, you know, I was just doing slow, steady work and just trying to get better as a writer. And, you know, when it came time to start shopping my novel out, I didn't have that many people I knew personally mm. that I could send it to. I had a few sort of secondhand connections where somebody was like, well, here's my agent. You know, you can send it to my agent and maybe they'll pick it up. Yeah. But none of those ended up working out. You know, none of the secondhand connections I had ended up working out really well. And so I just had to end up submitting it just sort of cold, like into slush piles, like sending it out to, to different places. But by then I had at least acquired some work that had been published in literary magazines. And, you know, I could speak to some of the conferences I'd attended. And so I think that that gave me at least a little bit of a sense that when an agent looked at it, they would say, okay, this is somebody who's at least invested some amount of time in, in sort of building their craft. Yeah. But beyond that, it was just, you know, the, the, the writing that was there. So it was, it was a challenge. And I think certainly there were less doors that were open for me at the start mm -hmm. than there are for other people. But, you know, what can you do when that's the, the situation except <laughs> just work, just hustle, right? You just got to exactly. keep working and work hard and, and whatever happens, happens. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Um, this is a global release via Penguin. What's your, bearing in mind you have two jobs and two kids, what's your press schedule yeah. been like? How, how tough's that been? It's been very tough. It's been very difficult. You know, trying to fit in interviews like this mm. at different times of the day along with, it's, in some ways, it's it's less demanding now than it would have been without the COVID-19 pandemic because yeah. I'm not traveling, right? Yeah. And we did have, I did have several rounds of traveling lined up. I was actually supposed to come out to the Sydney Writers Festival, for example, oh, wow. and I was wow. going to visit Hawaii on the way out to the oh, Sydney Writers geez. Festival. And, and there were several places I was going to visit on the West Coast and the, the East Coast. So I would have had a busier traveling schedule yeah. and it would have been happening right around now, actually. Yes. Uh, most of yeah. April was, was really busy for me in terms of travel. And so that's all gone. And so in, in that sense, it actually has ended up being less difficult than it would have been. But then a lot of the events that I was supposed to have have tried to reconfigure themselves into something digital. And that has required more work because then there's a lot more collaboration and coordination and, and doing work behind the scenes to try and figure out what platform to use and trying to, you know, sort of scramble to figure out a format that's going to be as engaging over you know, a video call as it would have been if I was sitting in a bookstore in person talking with people. So the, the amount of additional planning that has had to go into some of the digital events has been uh, challenging. And it's, yeah, it's just hard. Kavai, I know you're an incredibly busy man with this release. Um, so thank you so much for sparing your time with us today. Your name is Kavai Strong Washburn. The book is Sharks in the Time of Saviors, out now via Penguin Random House here in Australia. It's such a wonderful novel. Could you leave us with a song selection? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a song that would be a great one to allow people to hear the ukulele sounds that I reference in the novel. Mm. You can listen to Jake Shimabakuro, and the song that you would look for is As My Guitar Gently Weeps. Brilliant. 
here it is, Kavai, and I hope you make it back down to Australia soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today.
Harcourt Valley Vineyards is now bringing their award-winning wines, ginger beer and raspberry mead to your door, offering free delivery in central Victoria and Melbourne. Their lockdown wine box special includes a combination of Riesling, Grenache Rosé, Barb Shiraz, Cab Sav and Mount Camel Shiraz. Check out their Facebook page or Instagram for details or visit harcourtvalley.com.au. Harcourt Valley Vineyards is a full-bodied sponsor of Main FM. Knocked on your door. Lifehouse are designers of simple, serene buildings. We craft spaces and forms that are sympathetic to the environment in which we live and to the needs of our clients. They connect with the eye, mind and soul. Our firm of designers focus on the best energy efficient outcomes, producing beautiful, unique buildings. Contact us to discuss your project. You can find us at lifehousedesign.com.au. Lifehouse Design, creating smaller footprints, award-winning passive solar design and a proud supporter of Main FM. And now in the quiet carriage, it's time for part two of my interview with Denise Jepson, president of Friends of Castlemaine Library, or Focal, as they're better known as. Uh, you can listen to part one. It's available now on Spotify, Apple, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And she was primarily talking about our read-along dad's program. I just want to play you, or replay you rather, a quick snippet from an ABC interview a couple of years ago where prisoners themselves are talking about the program. The importance of this program to me in particular is the connection with my son. It's, you can't beat that. It's hard enough you know, when you're away from your family and your kids and if you can give them something back, I think that you can't put a price on that. They really love receiving the book and the CD. Uh, they listen to it in the car because they don't have a CD player. So, yeah. And they can listen to it while they're driving as well. It's, yeah, it's hard to explain the feeling that I get out of it when I know that at night I'm the last voice he hears before he goes to bed. And now I'll continue with part two of my interview with Denise Jepson from Friends of Castlemaine Library. So what does a day in prison involve for you guys? Like, are you there for the whole day? Or? Yes, uh at least six hours on one day and perhaps half a day on another day for 40. That Lisa's got children, so she uh, works it so that she works in term time, school term time. Mm-hmm. So it's about 40, 40 days uh, in each six months at least. Um, right. Uh, so it's, it's, she comes in, mm-hmm. she brings all the books. It's a lot of stuff to carry, in fact. There's yeah, a bit of storage there, but not a great deal. Yes. So she brings all the books. And before they re- re- uh, record their book, they've picked it out and they actually have a, a class in craft. So that what, they, what was started quite early on from the prisoner asking, mm-hmm. they like to decorate the CD cover and send a message oh, to their okay. kids. So yeah. they say, you know, here's a present from me, you know, Dad, love you and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. And they, they're very keen on this uh, decorating. Mm-hmm. So it's great, you know, and it, it really makes them feel good that they're doing that. So that's another extra bit to yeah. the program. So they do that and then uh, Lisa might do her other program as a book group and creative writing. Mm-hmm. And then the next week they, they will record the CD. And some of them are slower than others, the ones who can't read so well, but some are quite fast. Uh, I've talked to them in the craft session and I, we've watched them recording. Uh and it, it all works very well. They have privacy to mm-hmm. just one-to-one with Lisa. They don't have to read in front of anybody else. So that's, you know, very good as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, 
We also do events. Look, it just keeps going. The yeah. things. Uh, we do Christmas concerts. Right. Uh, with a band that dress up as animals, and the kids, yeah. when it's on the weekends, kids visit. Right, yes. Uh, it's a bit hit and miss how many there'll be, but usually there's at least, um, you know, 25 kids and yeah. 10 prisoners or more, at least. Sometimes it's 50. Uh, so that's great. We also do author talks. Yeah. So Lisa would have done a book in her book group thing, and then the person who wrote it or had contributed to it will come in, like yep. Father Bob, for instance. Right. He came. Yes. And we've had a lot of other authors and comedians doing right. things, yep. doing workshops in comedy writing. Right. Look, lots of things. It's That's amazing great. what you can do. Yeah, yeah. So you're a voluntary organisation. We are, yeah. I can only imagine that the joy it must bring you to see the results you get. But do you find the job frustrating at all? Like the system, especially? Uh, a little, yes. I mean, it's been pretty good, basically. Um, there's a little bit more um, risk assessment and stuff going on these days. And we, as I've told you before, we have to get uh, permission to, mm -hmm. do, to do publicity. But uh, it takes a little while, but we usually get the permission, so mm -hmm. that's good. One thing I should mention... In mm -hmm. fact, something that happened last week to do with read-along dads. Mm -hmm. I had an email from a woman uh, called Julie mm -hmm. who was the godmother of a young man who worked in prison reform in England. Mm -hmm. And you might recall late last year there was a, um, two murders at a conference near London Bridge. Yes. Uh, and she was the godmother of the young man, Jack Merritt. Oh, He's only right. 25 yeah. years old. Yeah. And he was one of the coordinators of this interesting program that Cambridge University runs, mm -hmm. uh, where prisoners and actual ordinary students learn together. Mm -hmm. It's in a criminology course. Mm -hmm. And so they were running a conference about evaluation of the program. And unfortunately, this guy turned up and killed both of yeah. them. And so she had talked to him in England a few months before this about our program because mm -hmm. she already she knew about it and he loved it. Because in England they do have a big thing called Storybook Dads but right. his, his program was different. It was this learning together thing which they think works very well because mm -hmm. the prisoners get credits and then they can put that into a course they might do in the future as well, mm -hmm. like a university course. Um, so she rang, she, then I talked to her on the phone and she's donated $500 to read along dads wow. and mums, uh, because in memory of Jack, which was just uh, a so touching thing yeah. to happen for us. I mean, we've had a few things like that happen, but this is the most touching and the most, you know, horrible to think of. Yeah. Um, she'd known Jack all her life and was best friends with his parents and she's English, but living here in Australia. Yeah. So there, there's things like that happen. Yeah. And it just makes you feel, you know. Yeah, it's lovely. Mm. Yeah. Have you ever felt threatened? Never. In prison? Never. That's great. No, all the guys are great. Mm -hmm. And I, I went to International Women's Day the other day at Tarangar. Mm. They ran a terrific thing. Uh, and, and some of the women prisoners had been on the committee running it. And um, there's lots of food and talks, really good talks by mm -hmm. a number of uh, people associated with the prison. It was great. It's, it's amazing what can be done, really. Yeah. You need a slightly innovative mindset. Yes. 
And so these days there's a little bit of, you know, the risk-averse thing is, you know, pretty big. Yeah. But things can be done, yeah. including radio. That's what I really like to see, a bit of um, podcasts and things. There was a terrific program in Darwin that I mm-hmm. read about at the women's prison, the women doing podcasts mm-hmm. and about their lives, interspersed with music and, you know, really interesting. Yeah. Big yeah. Road. Yeah. How would you like to see the program evolve? What does it mean? Well... I, I was talking to Rotary and we were going to the Rotary conference, but of course everything's been cancelled and Rotary would love to see that that sort of program um, rolled out all over Australia, which would be great. Yes. I mean, we're probably too small an organisation for that, yeah. but to be promoted, um, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. What can we do to help? Uh, well, you can keep, you know, having people like me to come and talk about it. And no problem. Get the, I mean, it's moderately well known around the town here, but mm-hmm. it's not totally known by everyone. No, everybody. I didn't know about it until, well, through the book sale. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, no, that'd be great. That's what you can do. I mean, you never know. We might be able to do some sort of podcast thing with um, Main FM. There is some talk of that. I don't want to give anything away, but I did hear some discussion of that. It's out of my remit. Yep. But uh, yep. watch this space. Yep. Um, can people get involved? They want to donate their time? Uh, well, with Focal, of course, we always want volunteers to help with the book sale, although we have got quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look, this year, who knows if the, the first book sale is going to happen, but yeah. we'll see. Everything's being cancelled. Yeah, it's pretty sad what's been going on at the moment. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we, we, um, we're always interested in new fundraising ideas and people to help organise them. Uh we have had a, a few volunteers volunteering for the prison to uh, do one-to-one reading with the prisoners. Mm-hmm. So that's a possibility. Yes. Although it's not very big at the moment. We have got a couple of volunteers for that. Uh, we, of course, always want to raise more money mm-hmm. um, to enlarge things. Yeah. Uh, more, more of everything, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask a bit about your background and how you got involved in the program? Uh, well, I've been the president of, of Friends of Castlemaine Library for quite a long time. I was the secretary at first off. We started 24 years ago. Okay. Uh, in the initial phase, Focal was um, lobbying against the compulsory competitive tendering of libraries. Jeff Kennett, yes. many years ago, ancient history for young people. Yep. But uh, we were lobbying against that. There was quite big uh, meetings and all sorts mm-hmm. of things. Fi- it, hopefully it worked. Well, Jeff Kennett um, got uh, ousted mm-hmm. before, you know, our library system kept, you know, putting it off, putting mm-hmm. it off. And that was the best thing to do because mm-hmm. libraries that, did do it early, you know, then they went privatised and yep. that's not what we want really. Yeah, of course. Anyway, I got involved then and uh, so I've been involved in Focal, supporting the library. I mean, w- what we were set up for was to yep. support the library and in those early days the library didn't have many staff or n- not even as much money as now, so we ran book uh, talks and things mm-hmm. like that. The library has wonderfully taken all that over now. Yep. Um but we're there to support the library, that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. And secondly, to run programs that we think would help disadvantaged people. I mean, you cover lots of people in books for babies, but some of them, of course, uh, wouldn't have thought of the library at all if they hadn't been 
you know, provoked into it. Mm -hmm. And the library does run great story times for kids. It does, And parents bring them. Have you brought your kids? Uh, Most weeks. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, So that's a great thing. So we support that. We buy furniture. We buy um, lots of things for the library. That's where all the book sale money goes to. Mm -hmm. So all the read-along dads is funded entirely by grants. So it doesn't come from our ordinary fundraising. Mm -hmm. But I would like to be able to raise more money for the library. I Mm -hmm. would. I mean, the book sale is a a good thing, way of doing it. But I would love to do more things. So... We just bought the library another couch that was good, so that's two couches in mm-hmm. the last six months. It's now the new one is just placed under our quilt. That was a fundraiser years ago. Right. Raised two thousand dollars that quilt. Right, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone paid ten dollars to put a book on it. So usually it was sewn on by volunteers. Yeah. Twenty five volunteers. So that was a good little fundraiser. Yeah. Uh it's hard to think of innovative things like that to do. Yes. So I'm always wanting people to tell me, <laughs> what can we do, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's always things to buy in libraries, even just down to perhaps cleaning the furniture. Yes. Uh, the orange chairs in the middle haven't been recovered and they do need cleaning, but maybe recovering might be the thing for us to pay for, yeah. I think. We were going to, but somehow it hasn't happened. Right. Um <laughs> here's a, here's a, a word out to the um, upholsterer in Campbell's Creek. Stephen, if you're there, uh, I, I'd like those chairs recovered, please. <laughs> it would be fair to say that the, the library's thriving, isn't it? It is. It is it, thriving. It, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there was a period there, maybe a couple of decades ago, with the introduction of the internet, people thought, well, you know, our yeah. library's on the way out, but, but definitely not. No, that's right. And one reason is because they've developed all these programs mm-hmm. and events which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, free events, they are too. All the, all the author talks are always free in in all the libraries. Yes. Um, yes, yeah, so, and, and books have not uh, gone away. No, not have at they? all. No. I mean, the library has other things like online uh, resources as mm-hmm. well, which is excellent, but books are still there. Yeah, it's definitely moved with the times, mm. definitely. Mm. And is your background in, in books and literacy? Look, yes, I was a librarian mm. for quite a few years, not in a public library, but in an education library, in a couple of different education libraries. So it's quite different than working in a public library, and I must say it's not as uh, hard either. You've got a bit of time to do research and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And then I actually... Uh, moved here full time and became a nursery person. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to do outside work. I got a bit mm-hmm. li- but I have never lost my interest in libraries. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, when I was doing the library graduate diploma in 1974, maybe, just after I'd done Deep Ed, in fact, uh, they talked about library services to the disadvantaged. And one of the main groups that I noticed we should be was prisoners. So that stuck with me, that idea. I never mm-hmm. forgot about it. I forgot about a lot of other things that I learned in the library course, but not that. And so when I when I got involved with Read Along Dads, it, it really harked back to what we'd mm-hmm. learned in that. And it, it's not an uncommon thing all over the world mm-hmm. uh, for these sort of programs. Not always run by friends of, ca- like a little friends of the library group. It's yes. unusual that such a prison program would be run by a f- friends group in fact i don't know of any others mm-hmm. um so 
it's interesting. We are too small, though, to really do a big mm-hmm. Australia-wide thing. We couldn't do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's such a wonderful program, and let's hope it can keep going and evolve as well. Yes. Um, and we played a little clip earlier from the ABC Earshot uh, podcast that you did. Uh, yes, we did. We they um, they did that wonderful program. Yeah. Um, that that was the one. The Earshot program mm-hmm. interviewed three daughters of a prisoner. Yes. So that was that one. We also yeah. have the uh, the ABC Open years ago now mm-hmm. did a wonderful uh, short video of the program running in the prison and it, it it did quite a lot of good background and good quotes from the guys yeah yeah, yeah. So, so for our listeners there if you google abc read along dads you'll be able to find it easily. yeah I put abc open read along dads right. and you will find it yeah fabulous so for more information you guys have a website as well we do we have a, a facebook page from mm-hmm. friends of Castlemaine library mm-hmm. and we also have um a website for read along dads yeah. it's only a fairly um rudimentary website mm-hmm. but it, it gives the our email uh, address to contact yeah. us what's the website address uh it's readalongdads.org.au readalongdads www.readalongdads.org.au yeah fabulous so our listeners can go there for more information denise jepson thank you so much for coming in it's been wonderful to hear about the great program you're doing and the wonderful benefits it's doing for both prisoners and their children please keep us posted on what you guys are up to okay thanks paul very much thank you no agenda music interviews mostly music Saturdays, noon until 2pm on 94.9 Main FM. Make it your soundtrack for Saturday. Hi, I'm Marie Edwards, your State Member of Parliament for Bendigo West. Castlemaine and District, including Campbell's Creek, Newstead, Malden, Tewton and Harcourt are important parts of my electorate. If you have any questions or anything you wish to discuss that concerns the State Government, I'm here to help. Please phone 5410 for an appointment. Spoken and authorised by M. Edwards, 16 Lockwood Road, Kangaroo Flat. Funded from Parliamentary Budget. Marie Edwards, supporting Main FM. Thank you for joining me today on The Quiet Carriage. And a big thank you to my guests, Denise Jepson, President at Focal, Friends of Castlemaine Library. And Kavai Strong-Washburn, author of Sharks in the Time of Saviours out now via Penguin. Next week, it's time for another author retrospective, and we'll be taking a look at the work of Colleen McCulloch. And we'll also be checking in with our sponsors, Stoneman's Bookroom, to find out what's going on in the book world. We're on at Fridays at 1pm on 94.9 Main FM, repeated Mondays at 4pm. You can also listen to old episodes on Spotify and beyond. I'm also across all the socials and you can get more information about the show at my website, pauljlaverty.com. I'm going to leave you now with the track Time Is My Everything by Ian Brown. Until next time from The Quiet Carriage, keep reading.
Soft time.